0: It's like an archery target, and you have to hit that center bullseye, right? Like, when in Rome, act like the Romans. You really need to act like the Romans, like right in there. But I think the reality uh, is that there's much more leeway. There, there's a range. There's what I call, in, in global dexterity, there's a zone of appropriateness for any situation in any culture.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster, Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an extraordinary guest today on the show. I can't wait to share him with each and every one of you. Andy Malinsky is a professor at Brandeis University's International Business School with a joint appointment in the Department of Psychology. He received his PhD in Organizational Behavior, and a master's in psychology from Harvard University. He also holds a master's degree in international affairs from Columbia University and a BA in international affairs from Brown University. Andy's work helps people develop the insights and courage necessary to act outside their personal and cultural comfort zones when doing important but challenging tasks in work and life. His research and writing have been featured in Harvard Business Review, Inc. Psychology Today, the Financial Times, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, NPR, and the Voice of America. He was awarded as a top voice for LinkedIn in his work in education and his first book, Global Dexterity, received the Axiom Award for Best Business Book in International Business and Globalizations. That book has been used widely in organizations around the world, including Boeing, AIG, the U.S. Air Force Academy, and others. His new book, Reach, was published with Penguin Random House in January of 2017. Andy teaches, consults, and lectures widely to university and corporate audiences. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So there's so many different ways we could go because your books are so interesting, and we'll definitely get to them. But I want to take a step back and talk about your journey and what got you interested in the work that you're doing and how your career developed. Yeah, it's interesting. It's
0: um, developed in sort of an organic, kind of you know, serendipitous way. I, I after college, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Uh, the one thing I did know is I knew I was really interested in foreign cultures and foreign languages, and so that brought me to France. And while I was in France, I became fascinated by sort of intercultural communication and adapting and adjusting cultural behavior and cultural differences. I was working for a small company there. I actually didn't love the work, but I was obsessed with what was happening in the office. So I got back to the US after that experience and I was trying to, I didn't have the language to describe what I was interested in. Like, you know, what is this? Turned out it was a blend of social psychology and organizational behavior and cross-cultural communication. And so I, on a whim, decided, you know what, my, I, I was actually in a master's program at the time uh, in international business at Columbia University, and all my friends were going off and getting jobs. And I thought to myself, you know what, I, I could do that, but I think I want to actually take a year and try research. You know, uh, and so I, I went to um, Harvard, and I worked as a sort of research assistant. I, I I convinced two professors, really interesting professors, that I'd be worth their time, and um, and I worked as a research assistant in 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 two really interesting labs in the Harvard psychology department. I became fascinated by it. And and then, and then that, that got me on my track. I, I ended up doing a PhD, uh, in organ in a sort of a combination of organizational behavior and psychology. My dissertation was about uh, adapting behavior across cultures. And there you go. And that, that's what got in, got me into is really life experience that inspired me to kind of study something and really become, try to develop an expertise in it. And
1: then, and then go from there isn't that interesting so you're you're over there in France you didn't know what was happening but you knew that you loved it and and then you were able to turn it into a career so let's talk about that so you know you have your background in organizational psychology but really your bread and butter within that as a subspecialty are these cultural differences. So, so take us through some of the, you know, there's, there's stereotypes about what it's like to work with Americans and what it's like to work with people of different cultures. Take us through some of the the basic tenets of cross-cultural organizational work. Yeah. So,
0: what my work's about, and what I noticed when I was living in, in in France at the time, I also lived in Spain as well, was that cultural differences were really important, uh, certainly important to know about. But what was even more important, what I was noticing, was that it was really hard for people to take that knowledge about cultural differences and put it into action. You know, because for example, I'll give you another example. I um, and then then we'll we'll answer your question. I think this will help answer your question. While I was was doing my PhD, I was working with uh, Russian professionals. Uh, who are resettling to the United States and having to learn to interview and network and so and, and, and so on? And, and, and the way that you would do that in Russia was so different. You know, you wouldn't make small talk. You wouldn't look an employer in the eye. You wouldn't shake hands with that strong handshake we're we're used to in the U.S. You wouldn't pitch or promote yourself in any way. It was inappropriate. And so, what was interesting is that these these folks I was working with were fully knowledgeable about the differences. They could write them out for you. They could they could tell them to you cold what they couldn't do is they couldn't implement them. And that's what I became so fascinated by. And so in my work, um, I focus on helping people step outside their cultural comfort zones in all sorts of ways. And I'll just give you an example. So I've come up with a way of diagnosing what I call the cultural code. This is a way to understand cultural differences in any situation, in any culture. It also helps sort of pinpoint what the challenges are for you in that situation, and what's what's going to be hard for you to try to adapt your behavior. So you can look at any situation in terms of directness, how straightforwardly you're expected to communicate in that situation, enthusiasm, how much positive emotion and energy you're expected to display, formality, assertiveness, self-promotion, how positively you're expected to speak about your accomplishments, and then personal disclosure how much you're expected to reveal about yourself. So those are six dimensions. Directness, enthusiasm, formality, assertiveness, self-promotion, and personal disclosure. What's cool is you can, you can, for any situation in any culture, you can look at the levels of those, what's expected in that situation. And that's a great way to find a gap between what's comfortable for you and what's expected. So that's like a that's an example of what I do, helping people understand what their pain points are and then help them
1: adapt and adjust. That's so interesting, Andy, and cracking this cultural code, you've kind of come up with this Rosetta Stone, if you will. Can you take us through each of those six dimensions and, and spend a little bit of time talking about them in, in a little bit of detail? Sure. Actually, what, what we could I'll be happy to do that, and I can also give you an example
0: if that would be helpful. That'd be great. So let's go with an example because that might actually answer your question too. So, so I work with a lot of people from China and from India, and let, let's let's actually look at India. It's a good example because with India, oftentimes you don't have a language issue as well. Most of the Indian professionals I work with are native English speakers as well, or at least fluent, you know, native level English speakers. So an example might be describing achievements to your boss. And and that's a common situation for, let's say, young professionals who, who want to have their boss know what they've been up to and sort of put a good positive foot forward and and, and their boss might not know what they've been up to. And so... Let's just look at three of the dimensions because you know six might be too much to talk about uh, at once. So let's look at enthusiasm, assertiveness, and self-promotion. Remember, we're we're comparing U.S. and India. So so U.S. enthusiasm, I would argue, it's relatively high. Uh, It's it's appropriate to show excitement for what you've done and accomplished. Now you don't want to go over the top, but but you want to you want to show excitement. India, not so much. I mean, the American style enthusiasm showing that sort of positive emotion and energy would be inappropriate in most cases in India for such a serious and formal discussion. Uh, Another dimension, assertiveness. Uh, Again, in the U.S., I would argue it's also relatively high. You want to be seen as a go-getter. If you've ever seen a job announcement, you'll see like self-starter, go-getter, right? These are sort of typically valued traits in the United States. You don't want to appear weak or timid. In India, interestingly, that American-style assertiveness is often way too aggressive, way too forward. And and instead, you actually, in India, deference and composure, the ability to to show deference and to be able to compose and control your emotions, that's what's culturally valued. And then self-promotion, as you might expect in the U.S., you know, when you're describing achievements to your boss, you, you kind of want to self-promote to a degree. You don't want to go over the top, right? You don't want to appear conceited, but you also don't want to be too modest. You want to you wanna be straightforward in terms of what you've accomplished. Perhaps, you know, saying how proud you are that you were able to contribute to the organization or something like that. In India, speaking openly about accomplishments often is taboo and comes across as conceited, even sort of a basic straightforward level. Uh, you'd be much more indirect, in India, and describing accomplishments. So, so this I think is an interesting snapshot where you're taking the exact same situation and you're looking at it through these dimensions, and you can see there's a strong cultural difference. Um, one last thing I'll say, though, is that of course when you're adapting and adjusting behavior across cultures, you know, not every boss in India is the same. Not every boss in America is the same. Not every region in India is the same. Same with the U.S. Not every company. Is the same, so we were talking about u s and India. What if this is the consulting firm McKinsey in Mumbai, for instance? They might have very western norms and western expectations so i'm I am painting with broad brushstrokes here, but you can see in general, there are some strong differences, and that's a way to portray them and understand them
1: and as you're walking us through this, andy I'm starting to get these ideas in my head, and I'm thinking, well, the corporate world has become increasingly Global, or I should say, globally co- connected, and technology has allowed us to do that in in ways that we've never been able to do that before. So, I'm envisioning these international companies that have offices, you know, in Bucharest and and in all these different places, but yet your employees are regionalized. So all of a sudden, now people are coming together and they're under the same umbrella, but they're having very, very different not only upbringings, but expectations from their own cultural experience as to how they should interact with their team members and supervisors. So talk us through how we make sense of that.
0: You mean working in global teams in a way? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a big challenge. I actually do a lot of consulting uh, with companies about how to help them create great virtual global teams. And that can be very challenging. You know, in global teams, when you're working... In, in a lot of these teams are are virtual, right? You know, with with as you mentioned technology, but with technology, it can be very hard to read nonverbal cues and cultural differences. It can can be hard to sort of establish collegiality, uh, rapport, trust, build relationships. You know, managing conflict ends up becoming very challenging, and so on. So it can be very difficult. But So there's a tremendous upside to technology and globalization, but when it comes down to it, in terms of managing global virtual teams, it can be very challenging. And so that's, that's, that's something that I work often with companies on, helping them to try to create more effective, successful,
1: uh, stronger global teams. And I think we're kind of teasing a segue into your first book, Global Dexterity, because it seems like this is a part of that. So I, I want to just jump back for a second and, and ask you what inspired you to write Global Dexterity. And then I want to get into the meat of that book.
0: Yeah. So so um, so Global Dexterity uh, came out of my research. It also came out of my teaching and my training. I told you the story earlier of working with Russian professionals early in my career, trying to network and interview and how it was so hard for them to take what they knew conceptually, intellectually, and put it into practice culturally because of how uncomfortable it was really emotionally to adapt and adjust. And then I kept seeing that everywhere. I saw that with foreign students in the United States participating in class. I saw it with the the foreign professionals that I was working with. I saw it with Americans who are trying to be effective abroad and adapt and adjust their behavior abroad. And so um, it's I, I did a I did a lot of academic research, I did a lot of teaching and training and and at some point in my career, you know actually the point where I got tenure really uh, in the academic world, which is basically where um, you've been recognized uh, for for your body of work as being an expert in a field. Uh, at that point, I said to myself, "I really want to be able to write something that doesn 't just speak to ac- other academics but actually makes an impact on professionals out there and so that that 's what inspired me to to write the book it 's inspired me to uh, i write i 've probably written about twenty five twenty six uh, Harvard Business Review articles about culture and cultural differences and adapting across cultures, and so I have a passion. Uh, through my for, through my teaching and training and writing and consulting now to try to help people do this better.
1: I love it. So, so take us through Global Dexterity and what people are going to learn when they read this book.
0: You're going to learn about why it's so difficult to adapt and adjust your behavior across cultures. You're going to learn that there are three core challenges of doing it. Uh, the challenge of authenticity, the challenge of competence, and the challenge of resentment uh meaning the challenge of authenticity being that you know you don't you might not feel yourself adapting and adjusting challenge of competence meaning you might feel you're bad at this and that other people see you as bad at this the challenge of resentment feeling like you know when in rome act like the romans but but deep down you might say to yourself you know why do i have to do this, right? This feels frustrating. I was, I was perfectly fine in my own culture, right? So logically, you know, you need to adapt, but psychologically it can be quite frustrating. So and those create a burden, those create a toll when you're trying to adapt and adjust. And that's why those Russians that I worked with early on really struggled putting into, putting into play what 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 they knew they needed to do. So you're going to learn about the challenges of adapting and adjusting behavior. You're going to learn about, uh, these challenges and all sorts of stories from all sorts of professions and all sorts of cultural backgrounds. And then you're going to learn about how to adapt and adjust your behavior, right? How to do it successfully, what the uh, prescription is in a way, very easy to use. And I also, with both my books, with Reach and Global Dexterity, I include tools and tips, like actual exercises people can do so they can implement exactly what we talk about sort of in their lives right there. Uh, And so that's what you'd find in Global Dexterity.
1: So I don't want you to give away all the keys to the castle, but uh, give us a couple of tips from Global Dexterity that people can implement to manage the issues involving authenticity, competence, and or resentment.
0: Main tip that I would offer is actually a very similar tip that I sort of elaborate upon in, in Reach, which is my newest book. Uh, not about culture per se, but about adapting and adjusting your behavior, and it's a theme, and a tool, and a tip that I that I sort of I, I introduce in global dexterity, but then I elaborate upon and reach, and that's what I call customization. It's the idea that there's there's no one size fits all version of adapting and adjusting your behavior across cultures, though sometimes people I think think there is. Like if I were to describe a metaphor of how people often think they need to adapt. Uh, to a new culture, it's like an archery target. And you have to hit that center bullseye, right? Like when in Rome, act like the Romans, you really need to act like the Romans, like right in there. But I think the reality uh, is that there's much more leeway. There, there's a range. There's what I call as in, in global dexterity, there's a zone of appropriateness for any situation in any culture. And you just need to find a place in that, you need to recognize what the zone is, but you need to to find a place in that zone where you can be appropriate and effective, which is, of course, important, right? If you want to achieve your goals, but at the same time, not lose who you are in the process. And the way you do that is by customizing. It's by tweaking. It's by finding your version. It might be creating a kind of a hybrid or a blend between some elements from your culture or your identity that are important to you and what's demanded in that situation in a new culture to be effective. It's it's science, of course, but it's also art, right? You're not going to... It takes some time. It's I, I like to actually use um, a cook. I like to cook. I, I like to use a cooking metaphor to help people that it's almost like fusion cuisine. That 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 you're bringing together two cultures on a plate, and you can't just slap together ingredients from two different cultures and hope and pray it's going to taste good, right? There's some art to it, right? You need to have the right ratios. You need to have the pieces fit together. But you can, and and the way that you can create fusion cuisine that really is delicious is the same way that you can create a fusion or a hybrid of cultural behavior that that actually works, that that makes you feel like you're not losing who you are in the process and at the same time helps you achieve your goals.
1: Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I want to shift gears and talk a bit about reach because while you're so known for your work involving cultural differences, you're also well known for helping people step outside of their comfort zone. So let's spend some time talking about comfort zones and then move into reach. Sure. So with comfort zones, you know, you always hear people talk about it's 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 almost cliche, right? They say, well, you've gotta you've gotta expand your comfort zone and you know, unless you, if you don't do that, you'll stagnate. But I want to know what's the science behind comfort zones. And let's start there. Well, comfort zones ultimately is a metaphor, right? There's,
0: it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a way that we're, we're talking about situations or tasks where we experience a certain degree of mastery, a certain level of anxiety and a comfort zone would probably be a situation where you have low levels of anxiety and high levels of mastery. It's your sweet spot. And you could distinguish that, for example, between like, what I, a, 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 here's a tip for something you can do right now. And it's something I work on with my students and clients. Take a piece of paper out and, and draw three circles. Uh, circle one is your comfort zone. Circle two is your stretch zone. And circle three is your panic zone. Right, and you could probably take I don't know ten situations that you commonly experience at work in your professional life. And I'll bet you you could probably find situations among those ten that are in each of those zones. Right? You know, in in, in, when when doing this, when when I don't know what it is, when having a business dinner, in telling a joke to a potential client, I'm kind of in my stretch zone. That's really hard for me. For me to pitch my business to a potential investor, that's in my panic zone. But for me to make small talk with someone I don't know that's kind of in my comfort zone, right? I'm just making this up, but, but, but that, that's the point. So in terms of science, it's a science of performance and anxiety really. But I think that, that ultimately it is a metaphor and, and I, but I think it's a helpful metaphor because I think people kind of resonate with the idea and can pretty readily sort of understand which
1: situations would be in which of the buckets. Fantastic, and then take us through. Now that we've set the stage, let's talk about Reach, your newest book, which is available now. Sure, Reach is a book about. Actually, it, it was inspired in some ways by Global Dexterity.
0: I kept getting uh, emails or um, comments on LinkedIn and, and and elsewhere about how the ideas in Global Dexterity were helpful beyond just adapting and adjusting your behavior across cultures and stepping outside your cultural comfort zone. And why don't you write something that's that's relevant to people outside of culture, and so I—it it sort of—I don't know why I hadn't thought of it, but I—it I, uh, inspired me, and so I did a whole bunch of uh, new research about, uh, first of all, about other other people's research about my uh, and, and also my own research. I interviewed about seventy-five new people, um, managers, doctors, police officers, therapists, actors, students, clergy members like priests, rabbis even a goat farmer, also all sorts of people in all sorts of situations, kind of some of the ones we've been talking about, public speaking, networking, giving feedback, receiving feedback, speaking up at a meeting, all sorts of things. And I was interested in three questions for this book. The first was, why is it so hard to step outside your comfort zone? And I identified some of the challenges with, with global dexterity, but I wanted to sort of confirm and also expand upon that. How do we avoid doing it? That was a second question. I, I, I sort of tapping my own experience, and I actually, I actually talk about my own experience quite a bit in Reach as well, because I'm, I'm no expert at this, though I've studied it a lot. How do we avoid doing it, including me? And then finally, the big question is, is what does it take to do it successfully? And, and, and so those three questions orient the book Reach, and uh, yeah, that, that's that's what it's about. Why is it so hard? So why is it so hard to step outside your comfort zone? Yeah. That's where I started. And I, and I found five different reasons, Consistent, not surprisingly consistent with some of the reasons I talked about in Global Dexterity, but now not about culture per se. So, so the first, again, is authenticity, which is really pronounced. You heard it, I, I heard it all the time and I continue to hear it. I, I train and coach people stepping outside their comfort zones as well. And authenticity, the idea that you know, when stepping outside your comfort zone, like this doesn't feel like me, right? That, that's a really hard thing to deal with. This isn't me. A second challenge, which I, which I hadn't identified with global dexterity, but was really pronounced when I started doing my research for reach was something I called likability. So you've got authenticity. You've also got the likability challenge, which is the fear that people won't like this version of me. So if I act more assertively than I'm used to, let's say that's my pain point. That's one of my challenges in stepping outside my comfort zone. And, and, and but, but I'm afraid that if I act assertively, people won't like this version of me. That's quite a burden to carry as you're attempting to step outside your comfort zone. A third is competence, like we talked about before. The worry that when public speaking, I'll look like a fool. And by the way, I'll, I'll feel like a fool and I'll look like a fool. There's a public and a private side to that. Fourth is resentment, as we talked about before. Resentful that we have to, that that I have to make small talk to be able to appease my boss and make connections with people. And that's going to get me ahead at work when my qualities as a worker are sometimes even feel less important than my ability to schmooze people and make small talk. And that can feel deeply resentful, especially if making small talk is very hard for me and outside my comfort zone. And then finally morality, that's the last one. The feeling that what I'm doing here is wrong or it feels wrong. Um, I actually opened my book Reach with a story of a young entrepreneur who started a business, Um, Lily Chang was her name. And very soon after she started her business, it turned out she had to fire her best friend. Talk about a morality challenge. It was very, very hard for her. Now, you're not going to experience every one of these challenges every time you step outside your comfort zone, but even one of them can make you, you know, avoid when to achieve your goals, you really should approach instead of avoid.
1: So you, you mentioned avoiding. So you know, the first question was, why is it so hard, which you've just answered. How do we avoid doing it?
0: We're really good at it,
1: <laughs> and if you think and if you think about it, there's a reason why we avoid. Right?
0: There's there's an upside of avoidance, which is which is the relief from having to not do something that's scary and uncomfortable. Right? Like, phew, I don't have to, to to deal with that. You know, let's say you're afraid of snakes. I don't I don't have to deal with that snake. Oh gosh, but 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 then the next time that snake comes around, it's not going to be any easier. It'll probably be harder. Now. Literally with snakes, you know. Many of us don't need to encounter snakes, but if your snake, so to speak, is you know, I don't know, promoting yourself or 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 sent or I don't know, selling your product or whatever it might be that's outside your comfort zone, it's just going to be harder the next time around, and we can get ourselves into a vicious avoiding cycle. So how do we avoid? We we sometimes we literally say no. I remember earlier in my career. I was asked to give speeches about 20 years ago when I first started 25 years ago. I was asked to give speeches. I was a professor at the University of Southern California in, in LA. I would say no. I would look at my calendar. They'd say, oh, you free October 14th. I'd look at my calendar. It was blank, by the way. And I would say, ah, geez, I'm really sorry. I'm not, not going to be able to make that date. Like praying, they wouldn't say, oh, well, the the 13th and the 15th are fine. I, I was afraid. I was terrified of, of, of doing it. So, so, so saying no. Sometimes we deliver only part of what's hard. Like, right, deliver only part of the negative feedback, but avoid other parts. Uh, sometimes we substitute, but substi- substitute one task for another, but, but an easier version, but probably a less effective version. So instead of going to a networking event and promoting our business and selling ourselves and our business, we decided to post on Facebook instead it's it's a substitute in some ways, and there's nothing inherently wrong with posting on Facebook, but it's not actually a replacement for that challenging task you need to do. And in some ways, it's avoidance, right? You know, we, we, we pass the buck. We have someone else do it. We rationalize to ourselves. Oh, it's not that important that I do whatever it might be. When in pro- Probably is right, at least for to achieve your goals. So those are some of the ways, but we're very we're very good at it. And and I uncovered lots of different ways that people do
1: do it. So that's the million dollar question, right? What does it take? How do we stop avoiding and and then reach to get outside our comfort zone?
0: And that's what I was interested in. I wanted to see what distinguished you know successful people, people who were able to take that leap from people who weren't. And what I'll say. Is that the key, the key to be able to step outside your comfort zone is to apply certain tools that I talk about in the book to nudge you towards trying something. And the reason that nudging you towards trying something is so important is that the only way that you'll discover something about yourself, that you'll learn about something, that that that, for example, that that what you were afraid of isn't as as fearful as you thought it was and and that you're actually better at it than you thought you were, the only way that you'll benefit from that discovery and self-knowledge, which by the way is critical for breaking that, uh, avoidance cycle the only way you'll do that is to actually try it and so the tools and techniques I found that were critical were all about nudging people to try something in a way that that worked for them. so the first was conviction you know finding your you talked about it earlier uh before we before we went live here your sense of why like why is it why is this so important what's my deep sense of purpose here like wh- like why does this matter to me and to really um it's it's almost a way of giving yourself psychological permission to go against the grain of what you ordinarily would do it doesn't it, it doesn't erase the discomfort but it gives you the motivation and drive and sense of purpose to take action despite that discomfort and that can come from a variety of places it could be personal it could be professional you might feel that this will that doing this will enable you to help others that it's your calling that it's it's the right thing for you to do that you've always wanted to start your own business whatever it might be find it embrace it that's a very very powerful tool in your toolkit and so conviction is the first the first thing that i found so the second is customization. We talked about that earlier with global dexterity. And that's making it your own. You know, in, 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 in Reach, I elaborate a lot on customization. I find all sorts of ways people can customize and make something their own, whether it's by changing their body language, whether it's their actual language, their words, whether it's changing the context, whether it's playing with timing, whether it's bringing a prop, a situation like a prop it's funny actually I, I, uh, I, I for years I used to I was afraid of public speaking earlier in my career. I used to used to wear a ring every a special ring every time I used to speak in public and it wasn't like a magical ring, but the stone in the ring was a stone that my great uncle had found in World War II he was in the Navy the beaches of the South Pacific, and that that ring meant something to me it meant it basically meant courage that that he had the courage to do what he did at that time in his life and then I would wear that ring and, and when I would s- sort of step into a room to to do public speaking, i would I would just think to myself for a moment, you know what if he could do that. I can do this, right? It, it, again, it wasn't magical, but it, diff, it gave me like a little bit of a nudge. So that's an example of a prop. But there's so many ways that you can customize. And I had so many great stories and examples. And I have, I have sort of worksheets to help people learn to customize on their own. So that was the second, the, the second tool. So you got conviction, customization. The last thing I'll briefly mention is what I call clarity. Um, stepping outside your comfort zone, as is, is, is we've talked about today, is it can be emotional. Your emotions can get the best of you. You can catastrophize, as psychologists talk about, thinking the worst, assuming the worst, predicting the worst. And what clarity does is it sort of normalizes and puts your reactions or enables you to put your own reactions into a normal frame. So for example, instead of thinking if you give a public speech that you're going to be an utter failure, you're going to faint on stage, you're going to make a complete fool of yourself to try to tone down that exaggerated thinking, that sort of emotionally fueled exaggerating thinking to normalize it and say, you know what? I'm probably not going to be the best TED talker the first time I go up there, but I'm probably also not going to faint on stage. I'm probably not going to make a fool of myself. I'll, I'll, I'll probably have some high moments, some lower moments, and I'll I'll learn a ton. And I'll bet you the second time I'll be even better. That sort of that that clarity in in sort of managing one's emotional reactions was a third sort of key tool I found that distinguished successful from unsuccessful
1: people. Outstanding. Andy, this has been a phenomenal discussion, and I hate that we're at time because this is blown by. But as you know, I like to ask all my guests a question, and that question is, what is your biggest helping, the single most important piece of information you'd love for somebody to walk away with after listening to our discussion today?
0: I think it would be to take action. You know, we can be in our heads. We can think of all sorts of ways that we might want to do something or, you know, or, or ambitions that we might have for ourselves. But I, I really think that that there is something to, t- to taking that leap, to trying something. And, and, and I, I don't think you should go blind and you should just sort of like the memes on the internet, jump off that cliff, jump off, you know, jump out of that airplane or whatever. Um, but, but, but I do think that, that, that sort of like strategically, thoughtfully, actually taking action and taking a leap can really be life-changing in a way because because it avoids avoidance. It, it starts to enable you to learn from your own experience and it can really transform your, your professional and in your personal life. So So
1: taking action would be my helping to offer. Beautiful. Andy, where can people find you?
0: Well, I've got a I've got a website uh, www.andymalinsky. Not surprisingly, and uh, I, I cr- basically created the website to be the kind of place I'd love to visit myself. So I've got all sorts of articles and videos and in self assessments and links to all my social media. There, um, I love to connect with people. So 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 please please find me and and connect and and, and I'd be honored if you checked out Reach or Global Dexterity as well.
1: And for those of you on the treadmill or commuting to work, we will have everything Andy Malinsky, including links to his two books, in the show notes at the dailyhelping.com as well as in the Daily Helping app available on iTunes and in the Google Play Store. Well, Andy, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a fantastic discussion. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to each and every one of you who chose to listen to this episode today. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people just like you find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.